Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... can I please have your attention? Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Very excited to having to have uh, my good friend and a fan favorite uh, back on. Uh, pod i've lost count how many times he's been on um it's, it's sort of like you know keeping track of your age at some point you hit diminishing returns uh dave bonson he's the head of the bonson group which we all know is a front for hydra uh he is also um uh, a poobah over at my old haunting ground national review he's the host of uh radio free california podcast and he also has his What's the name of your website? Dividend Cafe. Dividend Cafe. Sorry, I get confused. And uh, great to have you back, my friend. Well, it's great to be back. And so now we've put away the controversy of whether or not the fifth episode with the jacket is official. Because last time it was my fifth. Uh But one of them I co-hosted with David when you were gone. Uh, Yeah. yeah. So this is number six, but fifth with you. So there's no ambiguity now. I've arrived. You've broken through the tape. There's just no arguing about it. Yeah. All right, so I I have thoughts on this, but I'm sure you have more and and certainly more informed thoughts on this. Uh, we are recording. We should let listeners know. I believe the day before we get the latest GDP numbers, which in the before times, if we got a second quarter of negative growth, we would say that's sort of the the rule of thumb. That is the the hallmark of a. Uh, a recession, but there's pushback from the White House on all of this who say, don't call it a recession. It's merely a thriving economy that identifies as a recession. Uh, David, where do you come down on all this? So the problem is not with the White House pre-spinning or the right-wing media trying to get in front of it as an attack line. Those things both are to be expected and not worth complaining about. The problem is legitimately that the NBER definition is ambiguous. It, it, it says, first of all, it says we get to define a recession. So that's an incredible right granted upon this body that no one has ever heard of other than when we're talking about defining a recession. But it does say that it is generally defined as two quarters in a row, negative GDP growth, along with general circumstances of economic contraction, such as uh, falling wages, prices, um, and, and of course, employment. So there is a sense in which I don't much care that the White House is going to spin it if indeed it comes negative. The only reason I now think it will end up coming negative is because the White House has been <laughs> spinning it so much ahead of time. Um, 
I don't think they would have invited this scrutiny on themselves if they weren't anticipating. Uh, my thought after the first quarter number that did go negative, where so much of it was related to import-export imbalance, that China exported a lot less to us in the second quarter since they were locked down, and we exported a lot more to the world uh, because of our big pickup in crude oil and natural gas exports. And I thought that just technically and numerically, that would put it into a positive number, regardless of both the consumption and business production numbers. But perhaps it does come negative. All I can tell you is politically, it's going to get defined as a recession. Economically, it's going to still be ambiguous because it is. You have 3.6% unemployment and yet a lot of negative um, economic you know, factors. So that the mixed bag we have now, we're still going to have after the print tomorrow. Yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm kind of where you are on this insofar as I actually think the White House and its defenders on the merits have a case that this is not a a norm what we would normally recognize as let's assume it comes in negative right it still wouldn't be what we would normally recognize as a recession for a whole bunch of technical reasons i think the most important one being the unemployment stuff but the the reason why i'm still on the sort of right wing beat them over the head side of uh, uh, on this is that this kind of nuanced benefit of the doubt on the one hand, on the other hand, the White House has a point kind of thing only ever comes into play when Democrats are in office. And if you just switch, if like, I don't want to say if there, if this was Trump, if it was Bush, right, you would still have every news outlet out there of, of in the mainstream media saying, this is the time honored definition of a recession, blah, 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 blah. And, um, and to sort of say, this isn't one, even if you're technically right, is just, uh, if you don't, if, if, if you, if you're willing to bend the rules only for one side, they're not really rules. And so that kind of, that part kind of bothers me. The other part of that bothers me is I just, this administration has such an unbelievably infuriating obsession with thinking that all of their problems stem from messaging. And so they try to message stuff that is unmessageable, except with honesty. And I think it'd be, I'd have no problem if they came out and say, yeah, this meets the technical definition of a recession, but, and then off to the races explaining these other things, they get better goodwill, they would get more attention. They're still going to get the word recession in all the coverage. They're, they're still going to say, you know, economy goes into a recession, White House denies it, whatever. And the denying it thing, I think, is more damaging than just sort of owning the technical hit and then giving your explanation. Um, and so I, I kind of have a pox on everybody's house on this stuff. See, this actually should cut both ways. There, there's an automatic validation of what you're saying by inversing it. If there was not a technical recession, we had positive GDP growth that was very muted, but everything was terrible. Unemployment was high. People just felt no confidence. Businesses were not doing well. Stock market was dropping and we didn't have a recession, would that still be a negative? Of mm -hmm. course. And so if they're right that everything's great, but we have this technical thing, then it wouldn't matter. Right. Because, right? People don't need to be told if things are terrible in their lives right. or not. And so I think that um, your point is obviously right, the way the media would treat it. The only thing I would say, and far be it for me to be the one playing the devil's advocate here about this 
because that's normally your role. If Trump, Romney, Bush, or, or whoever is president, and this exact same thing happens, yes, they would be saying it's a recession. And yes, we would be saying, oh, but you know what? Unemployment's only sure, 3.6%. Absolutely. Totally fair. So it would go totally, both ways. Totally fair. The only difference is the asymmetry of who controls what institutions, right? And, but I, I, I agree with that entirely. No, it's funny you mentioned this. I was just before I came down here, I looked at the Chiron on MSNBC, and we don't need to get into the substance of this, but, um, and the headline was Attorney General Doesn't Rule Out Criminal Prosecution of Former President. Words of that effect. And it occurred to me that there's a problem in media coverage when a headline is considered a bombshell news and its exact opposite would be considered bombshell news, right? So it's a non-falsifiable thing. If the attorney general says, said, we are going to rule out under any circumstances <laughs> charging the former president with a crime, that would be huge news and an outrage, right? Because, Absolutely. You know, it's like, oh, we found out he murdered six children in their cribs, you know, like, yeah, but we ruled it out, you know? Um, and simultaneously, it would be, it's, it's, he has to say we haven't ruled it out because that's what prosecutors in, in the Department of Justice has to say. It's like pro forma. And so it's just basically the media getting what it wants to, to sort of continue a narrative rather than actually like thinking, thinking it through about what do the facts warrant, you know, this sort of coverage versus that sort of coverage. Yeah, I, I agree with you completely. I do, I do feel, and I've resonated with some of the stuff you've written lately about, about media bias, and I'm not sure it's so much because I'm drawing a principled line as much as I'm just exhausted yeah. by it. I'm so tired. And so that kind of silly you know, note uh, saying they haven't ruled something out, it doesn't really bother me, but it should. It's just that I expect right. it, and I'm sick yeah. of it. Um, and, and again, I think we know it kind of cuts both ways a little bit. The economic coverage is a little different because, for the most part, as a very, very heavy consumer of financial media for 25 years, and, there, and it has always been more nonpartisan than, than normal news media. It's become partisan. There's no question that CNBC has gone more left and obviously Fox Business more right. But between Bloomberg, Fox Biz, and CNBC, um, the, the, the coverage, the sensationalism is not usually agendized politically, mm -hmm. but for ratings, right. like the, the good old days, you know, where you, like it's a business model. And so it doesn't necessarily have to help or hurt a party. It is meant to just actually kind of hurt investors by scaring mm -hmm. them. And that, and that almost bothers me yeah. more than when you see rank partisanship at either MSNBC or Fox yeah. News. No, I mean, there's so many different kinds of media bias, you know, the whole, if it bleeds, it leads thing, you know, like good video of a car chase is going to crowd out some vastly more important public policy issue almost every single time, particularly on local news. You know, there's all sorts of things. Um, but if it bleeds, it leads, at least there's actually someone who's bleeding right. where with financial media, it's usually Microsoft reports a drop and it's like done in this red headline of something that is just completely completely immaterial and irrelevant. And yet you'll have like, you know, 5,000 people selling their Microsoft right. stock because of some stupid thing. And so it's more actionably relevant. Like it, it people, I, I think there's a worse consequence that comes from it. Yeah. So like taking cable news out of it, right. Which is where the media sites 
media outlets you cited, and taking politics out of it, what what would you say off the top of your head, not to put you on the spot by putting you on the spot, but like, you know, I, my underrated second book was all about how certain cliches do people's thinking for them. And, you know, there are all sorts of things that people just sort of run with without thinking through in the sort of more serious financial economic press, you know, the financial times op-ed page or the business section of the New York times. What would you say is, you know, given your most recent book, this is probably a good question. What is, what are some of the, uh, what the Tocqueville will call clear, but false ideas. You know, what are some of the cliches that are the narratives that drive bad economic coverage that kind of annoy you? Um, it's funny. The whole time you were setting it up, I was expecting it to go the opposite of what is the stuff you actually like <laughs> no, and no, think is good. Crap about what you like. <laughs> yeah. No, it's a good curveball. Um, generally, it's sensationalism. It's something along the lines of asserting um, that there is some sort of relevance in drama where there is mm-hmm. none. And so the more dramatic the headline or even just the kind of context of a given article or a story, um, it's, it's usually going uh, to be false and, and unhelpful. Um, and also, I believe that it's necessary in their business model because this stuff should be boring. Right, like how how in the world do you get good ratings? CNBC has unbelievable ad revenues, and they don't get it by talking about durable goods orders every Wednesday at eight a.m. You know, so you have to have a scandal with the CEO and questions about recession and this and that. The problem is that it has created a cycle where the media becomes an incredible contrary indicator about reality. When they're running, the old adage is really pretty true. When they start putting on the cover, you know, uh, can housing prices ever go down? That's usually the doom of housing. <laughs> and when they start saying, will anyone ever buy mo- stocks again? It usually starts a 20-year bull market. And those cliches have become cliches for a reason. So the sensationalism bothers me. Um, and, and then I also think, and this is, again, I guess me talking my own book, but I do prefer to hear about money from people who run money. And people who have no P&L giving commentary, um, and that was what CNBC did, and it boosted the ratings dramatically. They used to be anchors who brought on people to give perspective, and now they asked all their anchors to have a perspective, which is fine. It is better television, but they don't know what the hell they're talking wow. about. Wow. And that bothers me. So uh, I, we're going to get off of this in a second because this is not why people are flocking to listen to you. but. Um, friend of mine sent me this piece by the New York Times this morning that that this conversation just reminded me of. The New York Times has this this breaking news says assault rifle makers earned over 1 billion dollars as violence surged report says. And if you read a couple paragraphs into it, the 1 billion dollars was spread out across different companies over a 10 year period and it's not profits it's revenue and yeah. like i get their big number you know i mean a billion dollars is a big number depending on the context right it's not a big number in terms of like google's net worth but and but like the headline and the whole framing of it 
is built upon a certain amount of ignorance on the part of the reader to think that a billion dollars of revenue spread over several different firms over 10 years could actually be reflect kind of meager actual profits. And also the correlation, you know, the sort of Fox Butterfield kind of correlation that they go for, I don't know if it's Fox Butterfield, but like, you know, this, they made money as these, as these killings went up, as if the money, they made money off of the killings, which is the sort of subliminal message they want to send. That kind of thing, you know, it used to drive me crazy more, but I, I, I kind of price it in. But every now and then I'm like, great, really? They don't have responsible people who can sort of push back on this? Yeah, I, I think that in the Judeo-Christian ethic about the um, Ten Commandments, the, the principle has always been that you can lie by commission or omission. And I do not believe the media lies by commission a tenth as much as they do by omission, including the example you just cited. I think I heard you talk about it once. I've talked about it on TV a few times. There's been a great lie of omission throughout this coverage of energy companies when they talk about these huge profits. Oh, yeah, you talked about Exxon. The big profits, you can't talk about the profits of 2022 without mentioning the losses of 2020. Right. Right. The stories are necessarily connected. And, And so to sort of mention, oh, they had these huge excess gains this year and what it means without mentioning the massive losses and wealth destruction that took place out of the COVID moment, I think it's a lie, but it's a lie of omission. It's a lie by not telling the entire story. I think it happens all the time in media, particularly financial media. Yeah. I mean, another one with the oil industry is the stuff about how they have, the oil companies have all of these leases and they're not using them um, or they're not drilling oil on them. Well, some of those leases are exploratory. Some of them are bought as sort of environmental requirements to dump waste, you know, and they're not actually expecting to have oil in them. Um, and so if you just give the top number, you're making it sound like they're sitting on these vast reserves of stuff and not mentioning that the government actually makes it hard, even if you have a lease to go into it. Similarly, it's like when people talk about the trade deficit um, and foreign investment, and you'll hear it all the time, you know, Trump used to do this, Biden's done it, where you say, you know, the trade deficit, you know, is high, but we have all it. And that's bad, but we have all this great foreign investment, which is great. And the thing is, the two are linked in a very important way, and because um, those dollars have to come home, and people never want to talk about that. And anyway, it just—I feel like I'm sitting at the bar, just yelling at the TV. Yeah, you know what's interesting? Because because um, I've had Oren Cass on my Capital Record podcast a couple times, and that argument that guys like me, Larry Cuddle, have been making for years—that the um, trade deficit story doesn't end there; that dollars come back home in the form of foreign investment. Um, Oren is one who I vehemently disagree with on the subject, and I've debated him on Capital Record about it, but we've been kind of friendly in, in this debate. However, he actually acknowledges that, which is, to your point, what most don't right. do. It's just that he acknowledges it by then arguing with its real efficacy. Like he would say, yes, those dollars come back, but they're not going into jobs in Ohio. They're only going into certain things that are financialization or helping Wall Street. Or, and, I, and I think he's wrong, but my point is he's at least acknowledging the fact right, pattern right. and then forming an opinion around it where others just act as if we literally give a gift to China. Right. right. And then that's the end of the right. story. It's the strangest analysis that I've ever seen. It only started about six, seven years ago. Oh, I don't know. Weird. 
Um, all right. So, you know, I, I, I want to get to uh, Christian nationalism and post-millenarianism and all that stuff, but we got the there you go again. The, the post-millennialism. I can't say it. I literally, it's a hitch. It's 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 like someone hypnotized me and said, "You're going to go all Spike Jones and mispronounce things on this one weird egghead thing." But uh, um, the 800-pound gorilla in the room is, of course, the inflation question. Now, there are people out there who don't know that we've talked about this several times that you've that your Jedi mind trick powers have worked for a period of time and then they wore off and then they came back. Uh, they don't know that you email me evidence to prove that you were right from time to time. Um, so why don't we just sort of start from the beginning? Um, descriptively, before you get into your own interpretation of things, where are we on inflation? Like, where, where, what is the agreed-upon set of facts about where we are on inflation? And then you can segue from that into your explanation um, about the inflation situation and where you differ from some of the conventional wisdom. If you can see the list of others who receive that highly private, uh, <laughs> occasional emails, you would be so flattered that you are included <laughs> in this list of illuminaries. Um, and, and I love the interpretation that it's to, it, it, it's a fair way to sum it, but no, it's not so much to say that I, I've been right as much as pointing forward where, where things are going. And, the, the agreed-upon consensus is that the CPI number was 9.1% last month. That's um, indisputable. Uh, the PCE number, the personal consumption expenditures, will get an update for the month this coming Friday, and that's the one the Fed tends to look at more. Um, but regardless, the indisputable facts are that the inflation number has been very high. It's been a lot higher with food and energy included, which is what they call headline versus mm -hmm. core. So core excludes energy and food. Correct. Yeah. So my argument is that politically, headline inflation is a lot more important because people do eat and drive. And for financial markets, core is a lot more important because it takes out what is so subject to volatility, so susceptible to non-financial instrumentation. So both core and headline matter for different reasons. My view is indisputably that it is beginning to head down, but slowly and um, not necessarily to a position, a place that people are going to consider very low. Now, right now, the 10-year forward expectation, which our friend Ramesh Panero has been talking about for years, it's provided for us in a multi-trillion dollar financial market through what we call tip spreads. Um, the implied inflation expectation is 2.3%. And it was over 3% a few months ago. So investors are buying inflation-protected treasury bonds, assuming that the inflation rate will be 2.3. The Fed's target rate is 2. If you go backwards 10, 15, and 20 years, and take this 9% inflation, 8% inflation, whatever, combined with inflation per annum of all these years, we are averaging 2% inflation with this 8 and 9 reading. So you had a very long period of very low inflation, and we've had a very exacerbated inflation out of the last couple of years. And as I wrote in my Dividend Cafe on Friday, 
I'm okay with the fact that it's non-falsifiable. Um, when one put, posits a theory that the Biden spending bill caused it or the Fed's easy monetary policy caused it or other theories that I hold to that I think are far more defensible and plausible, we can't get certainty out of it. It, it isn't, it isn't going to be verifiable, particularly, by the way, if there's a multitude of explanations, which there probably right. is. It's overdetermined, right? I, I mean, the there least- are a lot of explanations that could work a little or a lot. That's right. I do, though, believe that some of them are dangerous than others for the future, because I think what a lot of people on the right are doing is implicitly empowering interventionists to think they have a power they don't have. Because if we argue that their policies, that we may mean to say they're bad, but someone else in a future date could say they're good. But if we say you have the ability to go create inflation, and by doing these other things, you have the ability to get rid of inflation, I do not believe we're going to be happy that we gave that sword to central planners, whether they be monetary or fiscal. And my belief is that it is untrue that the Fed could create the inflation, let alone did, and it's most certainly untrue that they can go solve it instantly. And so I've asked people countless times, explain to me how if the Fed funds rate were 8% tomorrow, that it would bring down energy prices as we talk over and over again that Biden isn't allowing enough to go at the pumps or Putin's stuff in Ukraine or whatever the the supply side origination may be. Um, Look, the, the Fed funds interest rate has been at the zero bound forever. They've gotten it up to the whopping number of, you know, around 2%. And money supply just had its biggest contraction in um, 19 years, since 2003, over the last couple of quarters, uh, before the Fed was cutting. So I only care about that aspect, not to defend the Biden administration or defend the central bank. I'm more critical of the Biden administration and central bank than my right-wing friends are that are going to the easiest narrative available that um, $20 trillion of spending from uh, Bush, Obama, and Trump did not create inflation, but $2 trillion of spending from Biden did. It is absurd. But, but there, there's some decent arguments about how, well, spending on the Afghanistan war and, and spending the, the stimulus coming out of recession on municipal pork barrel projects and all the different things Trump was spending on, that was different than just handing money to, to taxpayers. And, and I think that's a legitimate argument. And, and I do think if we were dropping money out of a helicopter, that that would be inflationary. Um, the difference is that we know from our own experience and most certainly from Japan's, that when you go pump the money supply and a consumer gets an extra $800 or $2,000 and they go and spend it, that whether it is one level removed or two levels removed, velocity utterly collapses. And that because of the very definition of quantity theory of money that Irving Fisher taught Milton Friedman and Milton Friedman taught all of us, you have to have velocity at least level for that increased money supply to be inflationary or even perhaps going higher. When velocity continues to drop like this, and it's at the lowest level we've ever seen right now, the money's not turning over. So you need money creation, and that has to come from greater loan demand. And you can't get greater loan demand when you have less and less and less and less borrowers. 
So what we've done is this vicious cycle that Fisher called a debt deflation um, paradox, where the more people seek to reduce debt, the more debt you end up having because it is, it is forcing downward movement and GDP growth and so forth. That's an extreme environment like in the Depression or the Great Recession or Japan has been living in. But in a more miniature version of it, that's the same dynamic that is putting so much downward pressure on GDP. If we, and this is more heady economic stuff, but if we start saying all Biden has to do is give another $1.9 trillion and we can get inflation up, and we're telling people we need more nominal GDP growth, we're telling the government they have the ability to do something they do not have. They cannot create growth, nominal let alone real, they cannot do, because I define wealth as the creation of goods and services, producing more than you consume. I don't consider this controversial. We cannot do that by any government machination. It requires human action, it re and, and the impediment to human action is what the government's doing. It is not the driving force. Okay, just a little cleanup stuff for listeners. Uh, I, while I'm sure most listeners um, are utterly fluent in all of this, for the sake of the few who are like me, um, let me just sort of remind everybody. So the velocity of money point is that you can throw a lot of money into the economy, but if people, but if those dollars don't, if they just lay there, right, or, or they get spent once and then they lay there in a bank account or in a mattress or whatever, it doesn't matter how many dollars you threw into the economy because the dollars aren't doing that sweet, sweet economic activity that produces um, high productivity, high growth, right? And so the old assumption, the old sort of Keynesian assumption was the second you give money to poor people or people in general, they spend it, that generates new activity, that generates new investment and all the rest. And the sort of argument that you make, that Ramesh makes, that other people make is that yeah, you can get poor people to spend the money once, but then they're going to spend it at the supermarket, and maybe that supermarket will spend it to a wholesaler. But very quickly, that dollar stops turning over and gets, just gets basically parked in the bank because eventually capital, which is just the fancy word for big stacks of, of schmundo, um, needs to be invested in good investments that have a promise of uh, some kind of significant return on the investment. And there's not enough opportunities to put that money into hot, good investments to create the kind of galvanic growth that the spenders think they get from spending the money. Is that a fair way of putting it? It, it is. But that point about the disincentive for production is one of the reasons for increased velocity, but it isn't the only reason. There is also, I believe, the mathematical reality of debt, that as debt in the society, national debt goes higher, whether it's household, corporate, or governmental, national income has to come lower. We have less money available to spend, hence velocity, because every dollar of debt is a future dollar that you can't be spending on new goods and services. So ergo, velocity comes, comes down. The only thing I'd add is that this is not a theory of mine or a theory of Ramesh's or a theory of, of a lot of the great economists that I think have had a lot to say about, about this subject. It is empirically indisputable that we have been going through declined velocity for about 20-something years, 
that Japan has gone through decline velocity for 30 years, and that it is completely and perfectly correlated with the decline of, of inflation. And, 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 and unfortunately, completely correlated with the decline of GDP growth. And, and so there, it isn't hypothetical. Now, can velocity suddenly increase? Um, that, I guess, is a theoretical argument for me to say no, that the next round of helicopter money doesn't magically get spent nine times instead of two times. But, but thus far, backward looking, the, art, the thing you describe has been exactly the descriptive component of American economics. Okay, so, and then you say, and I'm, 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 I'm just asking this for clarification purposes, you say the, neither the Fed nor Congress, which is basically fiscal versus um, uh, the other one. Um, what's the other kind of spending? Monetary. Monetary. Right. So neither can create the kind of economic growth that they think they're creating, or, not, or they can't create inflation, which is sort of a stand-in for economic growth in, in a certain sense in their minds. Certainly, and you said the Fed can't lower gas prices. You know, you can go to eight basis points and, you know, that won't lower gas prices. Certainly, if you have a recession, gas prices are going to lower, no? And you, the Fed, could, yes. and the Fed it, can cause a recession. Yes, yeah, so that's right. The, well, um, the, the Fed can help uh, set the table for a recession, sure. Ultimate, ultimately, though, my point is that that becomes a tertiary effect. Like, in other words, the um, gas is not bought on levered mm -hmm. money. So the Fed has far more control over housing, which is why I've always upheld that we do and have had housing price inflation and that it is largely a problem of the mm -hmm. Fed because they have a more direct lever on an asset that is bought with four to one or five to one levered right. money. 20% down is a lot to put down, but it's sort of the benchmark for a better rate. And so, that's the five to one you're talking about is basically. Yeah. And even if it's three to one, if someone's putting 33% right. down, it's still uh, a very bar, a levered asset class with, with gas. We have right. The argument is why do you need to use rates to uh, bring down gas prices? Cause you're trying, what, what does a recession do? What you were getting at, which you're right about is that you can bring demand down, but gas prices aren't up because of increased demand. We are consuming no more gas right now than we did in 2019. Demand is identical to pre-COVID level, yet uh, prices are up 100%. So that isn't a demand-side explanation, and therefore my criticism has been taking things that have a supply-side cause and, and diagnosing a, a, a demand-side solution. I think it's convoluted. The reason why all of this matters, for those of you in your car asking why does all of this matter, um, while you listen to this, is that you were sort of on one side of an argument about whether inflation was transitory or not. Don't like the word. I don't like the word either. All that kind of stuff. It was a Biden word. It was a dumb political word and all that kind of stuff. But you've been warning for a while this point about the real thing to worry about is deflation, not inflation. Uh, you point to Japan. I'm, I'm very persuaded about all that kind of stuff. And now you're basically, not you, but like in general, in politics, you're not allowed to say transitory anymore because, yeah. and, and the funny thing is, I mean, it's sort of like John Maynard Keynes, you know, when someone says, 
you know, mentions the long run and he says, well, in the long run, we're all dead. Uh, the, the definition of transitory depends entirely on your framework, right? And so a transitory that lasts 18 months is politically eternal, right? But a transitory that lasts 18 months for a history book is a very brief period. And so it's sort of like it all depends on your frame of reference kind of thing. But your point was that, and you, you got grief for it and you stood your ground, um, that it, it, the transitory nature of it may, is of no comfort to families trying to pay their bills on a monthly basis. Um, and it may be of no comfort to an uh, administration that, whose timeline is based on midterm elections, not you know, the grand warp and woof of the U.S. economy. But in a, in a real way, the, the inflation problem, while real, was created by supply-side problems, not demand-side problems, and that in the long run, when we figure out the supply-side problems, the demand-side problems will reassert themselves, and those problems are deflationary, not inflationary. Is that right? They are, at best case, disinflationary, and worst case, deflationary, and you're exactly right. And, and I'm totally comfortable to not fall on the sword about the semantics around transitory, although I basically agree with how you framed it, uh, you know, the, the word bec has become politically toxic, but it really just comes down to what the context is right. in the timeline. What I know is not transitory is the only thing I've ever been talking about, which is the secular structural period of um, the demise of American economic growth. We are not in an 18 month and, and not even now, it's not going to be an 18 year period. We are in multi-decade period. It, it began around the beginning of financial crisis. And my guess is it could go on for decades to come. So 30, 40 years of subpar economic growth, either low, slow, or no growth. That bothers me exponentially more than the current inflationary cyclical problems for which we have an abundance of solutions. We just don't have the will. There is no question energy prices could come down and you don't have to give away strategic petroleum reserves to do it. A coherent national energy policy could bring prices down. There are some things that, that can get fixed, but not necessarily simple. They're, not, they're going to be messy. Ports, you know, access to qualified labor, um, the issues with semiconductors, the issues with China's own lockdowns, that's complicated things. But all of the stuff we're talking about, I can talk to you about on your podcast all day, but they don't work on television for three sure. minutes or four minutes. They're totally uninteresting to people. Now, one of the things I've tried to do is just accept that. Like, I don't want to take it away as thunder, particularly as a conservative Republican who hopes that we win at the midterms and hopes this all hurts Biden's presidency's, you know, political uh, capital. I get it. But I do have a kind of bigger agenda, which is I think conservatives since the 70s outsourced economic policy to Keynesians, particularly center-right neo-Keynesians, and kind of said, look, we were wrong on all this stuff, and all conservatives seem to know how to do economically is doom and gloom, a kind of um, Murray Rothbard, Ron Paul view of the world. And, and that stuff hasn't worked well, so we're okay to, to 
put our administrations, because we've obviously had intermittent Republican leadership over the years, and our Fed governors, and our Treasury Department officials, and our NEC and CEA people are generally intellectually schizophrenic. There's not a movement ideology that comes in where, you know, when Clinton had Summers and Rubin and Greenspan was at the Fed, but he was one of them, there, there was a real consistency in economic policy. The right doesn't have it. And, the, and, and I think that you can look at supply-side thinking, which is mostly focused in the political sphere on reducing regulation and marginal tax rates. But monetary economics, we're afraid of it. Ron Paul was quacky in the way he presented a lot of things. And most of the people on stage admitted they didn't even know what he was talking about. And so fr from monetary policy to government spending to tax policy, energy, I want us to have a sort of economically uh, an intellectual coherence and consistency. And we're, we can't have it if we're one note that every single thing is going to be inflation when it isn't true. And when the entire need of the hour is growth, it, it morally, the, all the wealth divide, it is not true that AOC and Bernie Sanders have the upper hand on this conversation. As Bezos and Musk get richer, that will not matter to people that make 50 grand a year if they're making 60, then 70. Their mobility was called into question the last 14 years, and I'm convinced it was called into question by financial repression and excessive government indebtedness. The things that put a diminishing return and downward disinflationary pressures in Japan have come to our shores, and nobody wants to talk about it. Okay, I want to. I want to. There's something I want to pick up on in that, but I, I there's a question I got for you that just occurred to me. Um, every now and then, because I listen to NPR, because I, have, you know, someone has to. So you do MSNBC at your house and then NPR in your car? Um, I, I listen to a lot of NPR. Um, I listen to, I basically only watch Morning Joe in terms of like regular MSNBC viewing because I find um, I can get a really robust grasp of where inside the Beltway liberal conventional wisdom is from it. And it's a very useful sort of tell um, uh, or indicator, um, but it can drive me. But when Joy Reid comes on, is that when you flip to Seb Gorka over over at OAM? That's when I flip to uh, reruns of Roadhouse. Um, <laughs> so, uh, but on NPR, they've had a couple economists on. Um, I can't remember their names, you know, but one was like the chief economist for the AFL-CIO. Um, and they make an argument that it just dawned on me is not entirely entirely unrelated i don't want to say it's similar to but it's not entirely unrelated to your argument which is that um they don't think that the spending is the call is that spending qua spending is not necessarily the driver of inflation and that there is some spending that which sort of it's sort of the inverse of our of the rights traditional argument about tax growth tax cuts right that not all tax cuts are equal that you can create economic growth by getting rid of impediments to economic growth. And their argument is much more sort of the positive liberty argument that if you free people up from the costs of childcare, if you free people up from the costs of uh, prescription drug benefit, I mean, I can't remember what all the things were, you know, um, if you make their morning commute less expensive and less reliant on fossil fuels, blah, 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 
that actually is conducive to economic growth. I mean, it's the argument for infrastructure from time immemorial, right? Um, and their complaint is we live now in an environment where all spending is called inflationary based upon a sort of static pie analysis of how inflation works and or or without paying attention to the velocity money point in that one dollar into the economy is equal to any other dollar into the economy and that's their frustration is that that's why that this is the argument for the build back better thing now we can disagree about the public policy points about whether the spending is actually a good idea on the merits of what they want to spend it on but how do you adjudicate those kinds of arguments no i think that they're important arguments uh, it, it's just that they're not going to like what i would do with it because i am um, philosophically very committed to the idea that the most rational allocation of capital comes from the private sector, people who have possessed the knowledge necessary to adjudicate time and place circumstances. And I don't believe Washington, D.C. can allocate capital for child care as efficiently as the Goldberg House or the Bunsen House can. And I don't think it's a real controversial point, but it comes down largely to a divide between a conservative vision of government and a non-conservative one. But when it comes to the debt ramifications, I certainly accept the point that not all spending is equally destructive of economic growth. However, I do start with the premise, because when we talk, remember, it's still a redistributionist argument. When we talk about spending money on something that we all, like, remember the old thing in the, what was it, 90s about, they found out the Pentagon was spending 20 grand on toilet seats or something. Um, we all understand there's some things that are more, perversely wasteful than others. But even when you're talking about things that may be well-intentioned and perhaps even good policy, such as you know uh, people's commutes and health costs coming down and that type of stuff, you still can only pay for it by an extraction from the private sector. So no matter what, you get some crowding out. Ultimately, we're not talking as if there's a dollar that can go to efficient use versus an inefficient use. It's only a dollar going from an efficient use to a slightly less efficient use or a really less efficient use. But it's still coming from ideal state. Why do I say ideal state? Because it, it was originally in the hands of people with adequate knowledge and incentive. We remove the dollars from those with knowledge and incentive to go into another part of economic life. And fundamentally, I would argue from uh, Keynes would have never approved of what we do now. From a point of equilibrium, I disagree with Keynes. From a point where all the good spending has already been done, I profoundly disagree with him. That at this point, we have almost nothing left to do but dig ditches for the sake of digging right. ditches. I mean, I think the, the, the point you make about, you know, people couldn't see your air quotes, but like, there is such a thing as, good spending in principle there's such a thing as good spending versus bad spending inoculating kids against some horrific disease that is you know like that there's our argument for the state to be involved in that in a way that leaving it to market forces isn't that is a high return on investment that is good spending for the state given how expensive the cost of letting the disease run its course. We can come up with all sorts of hypotheticals about a dam, a bridge that actually are growth multipliers because um, uh, 
because they allow commerce to work at a higher velocity. Um, but we can't argue that that multiplier effect has collapsed. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the reason it's collapsed, which is uh, uh, corollary to the argument about velocity and to loan demand, is the law of diminishing sure. returns. And so the productivity, you, there's also, and I think you're making this distinction, but I want to highlight it. There are legitimate functions of government, like military, that are not necessarily productive economically. So see, I'm a broken window fallacy guy through and through, and I hate those arguments that war is good for the economy. I think sometimes war is good for defending your nation, but all things being equal, I still prefer to start businesses and build goods and services and meet human needs than go blow up you know, uh, another country, even if it's legitimate and necessary in the cause of national defense. Economically, it's not the most productive use of capital. And where the broken window fallacy is particularly perverse, because these days both parties are pretty anti-war, but the broken window fallacy is worse when you have a natural disaster. And people go like, okay, well, this Hurricane Harvey was terrible for Houston, but at least you're going to get a lot of economic construction money. Yeah, 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 yeah. It, but apply that thinking and the fallacy of that thinking to the way we're talking about the, the multiplier effect. At best case... You're, you're, there's just some spending that is going to be better than others, but all of it at this point as a negative multiplier. We are getting a diminishing return on the productivity of spending. Right. And I mean, the place where I think the broken window fallacy, and for, li- for listeners who don't know, broken window fallacy, it, it gets complicated because broken windows is a term of art in two branches of conservative eggheadery. Oh, I forgot there's about that. There's the James Q. Wilson broken window, and then a much older Bastiat. Um, argument about this famous, terrible, the broken window where someone smashes a window and someone says, oh, but isn't this great because this will give the glassmakers work to replace the window. And so it's an economic good. And Bastia, it's the, it's, the, it's the thing about the seen and unseen, right? But now the guy who owns the window of the bakery, bakery that was broken has to spend money to fix glass that he could have spent on a new oven or on you know another employee. And we forget that. Anyway, the reason why I bring it up is, or the reason, the, the, the place where I think it has, in some ways, the biggest relevance is in the climate change argument where, you know, Biden constantly says, when I see, when I think of climate change, I think of jobs. Um, first of all, tell that to Sri Lanka. Uh, but um, second of all, the, um, the idea that you can mothball the existing fossil fuel industry and replace it with a less efficient, less productive, less energy output industry and say, yay, look at all of the jobs we created by replacing you know, oil derricks and coal mines with, with windmills and, and uh, solar panels leaves out that like the higher energy costs and inefficiencies that that causes uh, cascade throughout the economy. And you have a less... If, Less energy, less you know, less money, less resources, fewer you know, fewer resources for other parts of the economy. And to listen to a lot of people talk about the 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 transition to a green economy, they make it sound like there are no costs to it, and there there are obviously huge costs to it, even if it's worth doing. My only point is like just it's a matter of there are obvious trade offs, and we it's 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 like a left wing version of the free trade argument where the right wingers, including me. 
Didn't talk enough about the downside problems of free trade, even though I believe in free trade, um, because it creates winners and losers. It just, you know, like in the long run, it's for the good. They don't want to acknowledge that the the transition to a green economy is going to create lots of winners and losers, and some of those losers are going to be, you know, a, a lot of normal households. Yeah, I think it, you're exactly right. One of the things that um, I'm really big on right now is not only the failure to acknowledge trade-offs, but the potential that um, in transitioning to green economy, you you do the damage that, that you talk about, and yet they would argue, no, it's for the better because of the greater environmental good. I think that what is being ignored is that the things that they're talking about doing will not generate the result that they're well, after. I think that's right. So not if they would, if we could just say hypothetically, if you do this, then you will get this, then we can have a societal discussion on if the trade-off is worth it. And that's sort of the point of allocating scarce resources is to be able to have a determination with knowledge and incentives about um, our allocation of scarcity. However, it'd be helpful to know that in these endeavors, we haven't reduced demand for fossil consumption in 18 years. Mm -hmm. And that when people say things like, we're going to force Exxon to divest of some of these carbon-producing activities, that the word divest does not mean go bury them. It means sell them. So we're not talking about getting rid of it. We're talking about transferring it from Exxon to a C-level player in Midland, Texas, or or a, a foreign actor. And, and maybe you think that the C-level actor is going to be a better environmental citizen than Exxon, and that, they're, that with less resources, that they're going to be able to be more green-friendly. I, I find that absurd, but um, again, we have to put these things out on the table to have the conversation, and all of it comes down to, I mean, that's why my book was called There's No Free Lunch, but ultimately that's why Milton Friedman you know, made that expression so famous. Pretty much all of this stuff comes down to an inability to accept trade-offs. And, and I think with environmental policy, it's now coming back to haunt them. Be, be, I've commented forever that the ESG movement, I never knew if it was really as popular as it felt, because at the time in capital markets, Energy was declining, and technology in Silicon Valley was in a, in a, on a roll. Now we've gone 18 months of it being the opposite, and lo and behold, the shine has come off of the ESG movement. So, so, so there, there, it strikes me that it may not even be popular, let alone ideologically feasible. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I've been arguing about this, about the global scenario, so... I do want to get off of this, but you know, when people say the important part of this is that we need to lead by example, that we can't get other countries to do X unless we do X first. And there's a certain plausibility to that argument, to be sure. But I mean, well, you mean how, like, when we legalize gay marriage and then all the Middle East? Exactly. Get. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> um, I think no. The the better example is when the Netherlands legalized gay marriage and then we did. Um, <laughs> but, uh, the, but my point is, is like, um, I, I think as a pure economic matter, right. Oil is a fungible commodity. 
right? I'd have that right. And um, and what a what a what a commodity, you know, what that what that means is is it is essentially as economic terms, it's an asset. It might as well be money. It's just a less efficient tool for buying goods and services. Although you can buy things in instead of using cash, you can give people barrels of oil. There are lots of people who will take it. Sort of like in the in the movies where people say, look, I can pay you in cash or I can pay you in kilos of Coke. It's like, it's a commodity. You, people will take it. And so when we tell developing countries, hey, you got to follow our example and not pull that stuff out of the ground. Um, maybe that'll work at the margins in some places at some times. Like I'm actually very skeptical about some Arctic drilling um, at sea because of the costs of the of spills, but that's a different issue. But at the, for the most part, it's like, if you're talking that to a developing country, the way to think about it, to understand how they're going to hear it is, you have $2 trillion sitting under the surface of your territory. We're asking you not to dig it up. And like, how persuasive is that to a developing country? Never mind a corrupt, a developing country with a corrupt leadership. They might take bribes to not dig it up today or tomorrow, but. <laughs> At least, though, a lot of these countries don't have a history of seeing their young men get radicalized and do bad things when they face economic turmoil. Right, right. Again, there are costs everything. Okay, so I, I, we went long on all of this stuff, and I know that you have to go out and um, raise more billions of dollars and all that kind of thing. But, Jonah, did we get closure for you on inflation? Uh, will we ever get closure? Um, you know, every time, look, every time. You come on, it's sort of like that episode of Star Trek called Spock's Brain, where McCoy puts on the helmet and it teaches him how he can do all these amazing things. And then after a little while, it starts to wear off and he forgets. So uh, yeah, we, we might have fair. to have you back. So I think it's fair to say you are one of the most sort of both informed and um, sincere Christians that I know. Um, you know, you, you know, more than the average uh, bears about theology and whatnot. And I know a lot of people who know about the theology stuff, and I know a lot of people who know about the economic stuff, but not that many people where the Venn diagrams overlap. And so in the time we got left, let's just talk for a second here. Um, I think it's obvious to me that you do not believe man is merely homo economicus. It's obvious to me that you don't believe man lives by bread alone and all these kinds of things. And yet, unlike a lot of people on the sort of new right these days, uh, you think economic growth and economic activity and prosperity are good for people's souls in a meaningful way. And if I have that wrong, you're, this is your chance to correct me. But can you just sort of explain that relationship between the nasty, what you see as the nastiness in our culture and the lack of economic growth and how the two play together? Yeah, I think that my view, that the prosperity and, and enrichment, as McCoskey calls it, that these things are all good, I view it in the effect category, not the cause category. But nevertheless, I make the connection between the um, juxtaposition of man's moral being and his economic well-being as positively correlated because of my theology of creation. I believe that God made man to be productive and that his soul is filled when he is being productive. 
partially because he's being obedient, partially because he's being true to what he was created for. I think that economics is the study of human action, and it starts with what we know about the human person. And the easiest thing for me to identify about the human person is that they possess both the material or physical and spiritual or immaterial component. And this, to me, is economics. This is Burkean. And in a less developed sense, I don't like uh, Schumpeter referring to it as pre-scientific, but I think that there is some foundation to it in Aristotelian thought and uh, Augustine. And, um, of course, my Catholic friends love using uh, Aquinas here because he was, um, as far as pre-classical economist and pre-Adam Smith goes, one of the first to start laying the foundation for the kind of morality and virtue and character and healthy things that can happen in the spiritual realm out of the physical realm. But what I don't believe is that by nature of getting richer, that that automatically means greater emotional and, and spiritual well-being that would be a straw man where one is trying to link it to prosperity theology or, or a greed is good outlook or something like that. What I'm saying is that when mankind is more productive, they often do get richer because I think that wealth equals production minus consumption. When you produce more than you consume, you get wealthier. But my, the spiritual and metaphysical undergirding to this is rooted in my belief that we were anthropologically made to be creative, innovative, and productive. Yeah, I mean, um, I was, th this is one of the big takeaways of, of my last book, which was that I'd heard all my life about the Protestant work ethic as being at the source of, of capitalism, you know, and some people had a hard version of that, and some people had a soft version of that. And I think there's a lot of truth to it, but the thing that, you know, sort of was, I guess I sort of had a vague appreciation of beforehand, but then it sort of hit me like a thunderbolt is like, so what the, 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 for the people imbued with the Protestant work ethic, they weren't doing it to get rich, right? They were doing it because this was considered sort of the best way to live your life if you wanted to be a decent person and more importantly if if when it was tied into predestination and whatnot is sort of this act as if you're going to get into heaven because even though that's not a guarantee that you'll get into heaven if you don't act that way it's pretty obvious that you won't get into heaven and it turns out that the wealth creation stuff was an accidental byproduct no one proposed you know the protestant work ethic or in, the, in those various denominations saying, do this stuff to get rich. They said, do this stuff to get right with God. And it turned out that if you got right with God, the odds were that you were actually going to be a more productive citizen and a more, have a more productive community. And you can find analogs in that in Judaism and how you know Jews you know, over-educate their kids and all these kinds of things. And, um, and I think that component of it, I think a lot of the religious people are really bad at talking about it. And a lot of the economics people don't get it. And, um, and so you get, it's one of these easiest areas for the left to caricature what, why so many people of faith on the right believe economic growth is good, but they don't articulate it very well. 
I mean, maybe I'm being unfair. No, I, th I think you're right. But I think that whether it's people of faith or not, the left's concern with this issue that puts a lot of empathy, even the sort of Austrian focus on human action, um, my focus on human action is specifically, it's not Randian, it's very rooted to a relationship with a creator. It has a lot of theological meaning to it. It has ethical connotations. There's a right and a wrong here. But even like Arthur Brooks talked all the time about just the telos of work, that it, it does bring purpose. His concept of earned success, I think, was pretty benign. I don't, I mean, who, who could have taken exception to that? But the problem for the left is it undermines their, their vision of economics as econometric, math, science, and we can eliminate these other um, kind of human behavioral and, and spiritual considerations. What you talked about, like mankind being purely homo economist, that plays into the idea that actually central planners can optimize economic decision-making because I so fundamentally disagree that central planners can do that, it's helped me identify what their real motive is. Because I always, to be honest, was a little confused. If it was just a matter of one wants big government, one wants little government, that, that isn't very complicated to me. But why was there such an opposition to the idea of studying economics from a more specifically um, human person-centered perspective? And I do think that's the agenda at play, is it's useful to central planners to believe that they can reduce things to mathematical equations that allow for their, their expertise to come optimize conditions. And Hayek had all his objections to it, but I think that um, thousands of years before Hayek, that um, out of creation and out of just basic Judeo-Christian theology, the primary objection is that mankind was made with a certain um, nature that was given reason and rationality that the animal kingdom was not given and was, they said God made us with, uh, in his image, with dignity. That enlightened dignity, um, and again, this may bore some listeners, it may even bore you, but I think it's important. God said about everything he created, it is good. It is good. It is good. And then he got to man and he said, it is very good. And I think there's linguistic significance there. The very good component refers to mankind having an ability to add ideas to matter. That's really what economics is to me and what we've been blessed to live through over thousands of years. And as you've pointed out in your not underrated book, <laughs> Suicide of the West, that great miracle, um, in my opinion, was when a lot of things from the Enlightenment, from classical economics, uh, from Judeo-Christian thought, all came together to all of a sudden more formally and systematically recognize what was already true from the garden. Mankind has this ability. So we were, we were impeding our progress for years with a feudal system, with a caste system, with, with you know, um, all the bad forms of government and, and social cooperation that we went through. And for the most part, this, this hockey stick growth has come about as a result of combining what was already creatively true 
with now a better structure and a better uh, system for, for living. And, and so I, where I become controversial is not as much with people on the left, it's with people on the right, that I think my secular economic friends, my, my mentors of the 20th century, von Mises, Hayek, and Milton Friedman, I think all ultimately had a futile view of economics because I think their secular rationalism goes so far. They have supply and demand and marginal utility down-packed, knowledge problem down-packed. Those are all true no matter who's saying them and regardless of the lack of anthropology or theology behind it. But I am more on Yuval Levin's side here, and I would say ultimately Burke, my friends at Acton Institute. I know you just had Father Sirico on a few weeks ago. I don't think this stuff's sustainable if it is not attached to spiritual reality and transcendent truth. It is not animating or motivating. I would like to think that people don't want to sleep on the couch all day, smoke pot, play video games but it turns out that they do. And it is, to me, telos that drives mankind in its best self, and I can't make that argument apart from a moral and spiritual dimension. Yep, no, it's very well said. Obviously, we could go round and round a little bit on this one, but um, we're past the hour, and I got to go write a G-file. So maybe I'll just do it there. Dave Bonson, thank you so much for being on. Always a pleasure. Obviously, we'll have you back because eventually I'll start believing the wrong people on inflation again. Well, you've had some good guests, and I am uh, honored to be one of them as always, my friend. Okay, so uh, David has left the studio. Uh, actually, he left the conversation a little... I mean, he left... The conversation ended a little while ago, but we kept chatting for a bit afterwards, um, just talking shop and spreading gossip, solving the world's problems. I hope this wasn't too much in the weeds. It's funny, you know, like... I am so much better equipped at keeping, uh, keeping the jargon at bay or at least digestible when it comes to things like theology and philosophy and national security than I am about like CNBC-style economics. But I know that a lot of our listeners are more sophisticated about that kind of stuff than I am. And, um, and I always found talking, I always love talking to David. We probably should have segued into the sort of theological, cultural stuff a little earlier. That's on me, but I just go where my curiosity takes me. Um, and that's about all I got. If you guys, uh, you know, you should check out, if you're a paid member of the Dispatch community, you should check out the stuff on the site about, we'll put a link in the show notes to the Naples conference that we're going to be doing in November. Great if people could show up. Some people might want to have brown liquor and cigars with me. That will be um, an option on the agenda, to be sure. And... Um, um, some people want to go play that stupid game where you hit a small ball with a long stick. Um, and I'll let others at the dispatch help with that. Um, but beyond that, uh, I want to thank everybody for listening. And again, the best way to help the podcasts that you may like at the dispatch is be by becoming a full fledged member of the dispatch community. And that way you can even comment on a lot of this stuff and, um, and it helps us do more and better stuff. So with that, uh, thanks again, and I will see you next time. No, you won't. It's a podcast. Step into the world of power, loyalty 
and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.